Welcome to the Nurse Becoming podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Guarneri from the Resume RX, and this is the podcast that's dedicated to empowering and encouraging nurses along your path of professional and self discovery. As a nurse practitioner, mom, and business owner, I'm on a mission to help you figure out how to leave your lasting impact on the world, all while bravely and fearlessly growing along the way. Join me for honest conversations and inspiring stories about personal and professional growth, all through the lens of nursing. Hey friends, welcome back to the Nurse Becoming Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Guarneri, and I am so excited that you decided to tune in today. How are you? I hope you are doing well. I am recording this the day after the launch of the podcast, and I am just so grateful for everyone's support. And this is kind of just like a dream come true for me. So I just wanted to thank you and send you lots of love. Today is a special day because I have Tiffany Gibson on the show. Tiffany is a nurse. She's also a clinical nurse educator, and she most recently has moved into the role of diversity and inclusion advocate for her hospital system. And additionally, she owns a business in her free time, haha, called New Nurse Academy. And there she's a success coach and mentor to up and coming and new nurses. Basically, if you need help passing the NCLEX, Tiffany is your girl. If you are a new nurse, she has an amazing club and offering called the Personal Preceptor Club. And it's essentially your one-stop shop to have Tiffany as your mentor as you transition to your nursing role. So she is really just a superstar. Tiffany and I became friends a little over a year ago uh, through Instagram, and she has become such a great friend of mine. And we have previously had conversations about diversity and inclusion and structural barriers within the realm of healthcare and nursing and the hiring process and professionalism. And given the civil unrest that has erupted in 2020 and also the start of my podcast, I asked if she would be willing to come on as a guest and take one of our conversations public. And graciously, she agreed. And not only did she agree, she was excited about it. Um, So in this episode, we dive into a couple things. We dive into some personal questions that I asked Tiffany specifically about how her energy has been affected by not only being a Black woman during the time of this civil unrest that we are experiencing, but also being a Black woman serving in a diversity and inclusion advocacy and educator role. We talked about um, structural racism within healthcare, how to call out racism among nurses, and how non-Black nurses can be anti-racist and support Black nurses in the workplace, like on the floor during a shift. I truly believe that this is a super important, crucial conversation for us to have as nurses, and I really do hope you enjoy the episode. As always, with all the episodes, you can go to nursebecoming.com to read the show notes, and specifically, you can learn more about Tiffany and how to connect with her on Instagram and her website and follow along with her. So without further ado, we will get right into the episode. So, hey, Tiffany, thank you so much for coming on the Nurse Becoming podcast. Yay. I'm um, excited to be here. I'm excited, too. I'm excited to chat with you. You and I have had a lot of conversations over the past year or so of our friendship. So um, I'm excited just to uh, chat with you in a little bit more of a formal way because we're recording it this time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so first, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. In particular, you have a new role in your job that I'd love for you to tell us more about. It happened in a timely, in a timely way. It kind of aligned with 
what we're calling civil rights 2.0 or the civil unrest of 2020. So I'd love for you to give us a little bit of an overview of kind of where you're at now and how that has evolved from your recent career path. Thank you. So I am currently officially the diversity and inclusion advocate for um, a division in a hospital system out here in Philadelphia. My role is called an advocate because I'm still a clinical educator. They did not take away those roles and responsibilities from me. And so to tie the two together so that I can do both jobs under two different managers, I am basically the head of diversity and inclusion for two hospitals. And talk about orientation and onboarding. This happened the Monday after George Floyd was murdered that my position was going to be announced to the hospital. However, I had already been doing the work in the background informally for over a year and had already been working with um, our chief of staff and our president of the hospital and doing stuff, a lot of groundwork with diversity and inclusion in our hospital. But because of the murder of George Floyd, putting me officially in my position was paramount. Um, talk about timing. The president of the two hospitals is retiring. Uh, oh, at, in a couple of days, the end of this month, she's retiring. And one of her goals was to have me in this position before she left because we didn't know who the new president was going to be. And she felt like uh, she needed me formally in this role so that I can make decisions and I had the authority to get things done without a lot of pushback and barriers. So I love that about my president. She is such an active ally. And I love that she uh, saw that in me to put me in this leadership position to say, before I leave, I need to make sure that you have everything that you need to get this ball rolling because we need to keep our pulse on equity and equality and inclusion in the hospital. So I love that. So that's my new role. I'm still a clinical educator. So I still do skills and I still do competencies and I still do new hire orientation and, and all that other fun stuff, which I love. And I'm trying to juggle the two right now, which talk about um, stress and managing things and balance and home life and all that other fun stuff. So how are you, how are you doing it all? I mean, energetically, I feel like you, you know, you need to show up for your original position. Now you're showing up for this additional position that's not only charged in and of itself, but like charged in the setting of what we're going through as a country right now. And then also energetically show up, you know, as a mom and also do whatever personal work you need to do as part of this anti-racism journey as well. I imagine that there's personal work that you have to do just like I have to do. I just have the privilege of, you know, being able to decide when and where I'm going to do it because it's not part of my lived experience. So I'd love to hear kind of what that energy is, is like for you and how you move through those different identities. Definitely. Um, I can say at the end of April, beginning of May, I was starting to feel COVID burnout. Um, and starting to envy my friends who are working from home because every single day I still had to get up and go to work. I did not have the luxury to be home. And I still had to work and I was working longer hours and I was working harder because COVID, right? And so I found myself dreading to go to work. 
At first, it was the anxiety of catching coronavirus and bringing it home to my daughter. So I sent my daughter to live with my mom in New York because we didn't know what this was. And oh my gosh, this is scary. But then after a while, it was just like, this is just enough. <laughs> you know, it's overwhelming. And it's just, it was just information overload and um, overworking and managing emotions and death and dying. And it was a lot. So I was starting to lose steam. And I remember around uh, Nurses Week, I had called out of work, not even realizing it was Nurses Week because I didn't care about nursing. I, I just wanted to be home and I wanted to sit down somewhere and I just did not want to have to commute to work. Um, and I wanted the luxury of being in my PJs and watching Netflix and Netflix asking me, are you still watching? <laughs> and then, so what I started to do was take more work from home days. And there wasn't a lot of competency and that much going on at the time. A lot of the initial COVID preparedness and readiness and education had already been done. We had already been doing this for about three months now. So I started to go to work late and leaving early. And I started taking my laptop home and jumping on meetings from home because it's Zoom. And so who knows, you know, where I'm at if I turn my video off. And that was kind of me reclaiming my time. And then at the end of May, George Floyd was murdered and the country erupted. And I live in Philadelphia and Philadelphia was literally on fire. And I remember going to work that Friday. I believe that the news came out Monday night, Tuesday morning that he died. I was at work that Friday and I could not concentrate at work because I was emotionally distressed. Mm -hmm. And I sent an email to my boss um, and to the president of the hospital to say, I can't, I can't get right. I'm distracted and I'm conflicted, emotional, but yet I'm supposed to answer the phone and be professional and present and, um, you know, be somebody else's resource. And it's not fair to me that I have to suppress these emotions. And my, my president responded back and said, Tiff, you're right. What can we do? And so that's when I started thinking about how can we support people and let them know that it's okay not to be okay while they're at work. With that said, that reinvigorated something in me because now it's like I have this purpose that's bigger than me. And so now I find myself waking up at 5 a.m., 5.30, and I'm in the office by 7. And, and, I, and I don't leave until 5.30. And that's been my new normal for the past three weeks where I'm working these long hours every day because th things have to get done. And now I'm in charge to get them done. And that's what motivates me. When I come home, I am no good, right? I'm mm -hmm. falling asleep on the couch. I barely want to make dinner. Thank you so much for the Uber Eats. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's, it's literally eating PB&J sandwiches because that's all the energy that I have. And trying to be a FaceTime mom because my daughter is still in New York and trying to be present for um, my boyfriend and, and have, you know, quality, intimate time with him. And you, you get stretched in. But one of the things I tell my mentorship group at the Personal Preceptor Club is you have to fill your cup and then the overflow is what you give. You know, a lot of people, they say, I have to fill my cup, but it's not for you to give that to people. What's in your cup is for you. What overflows is for, for other people. Mm -hmm. What do I do? Um, I buy candles. Spent so much money <laughs> the other day buying candles. I buy plants. I now have 23 plants in my house. and No, 28 plants in my house and three at, in the office. Wow. 
And um, yeah, and I'm redecorating my living room piece by piece. And so it's like little things like that because when I'm home, I want to feel good and I want to look at things that make me smile. And um, my daughter is not here, so I don't have um, someone, you know, home every time that I get home. So that's my motivation. But I love the fact that I was given the opportunity to lead this, um, this movement at my hospital. And that is a big responsibility that I do not take lightly. And so that's what motivates me because if not me, then who? Yeah. Do you feel like when you're going through those busy days now because you feel, you know, reinvigorated or motivated, do you feel like you are still kind of having purpose and being present as opposed to just being distracted by being busy? No, I, I definitely feel like now because it's so new, right? And, I, and I'm still going through my onboarding process and trying to figure out what my new normal is going to be. I'm, I'm still present. It is emotionally taxing to be the person who does diversity and inclusion. Because not only am I trying to um, make change, I'm also now listening to all these incidents and events and things that have gone wrong and come up with a way to rectify it. And so the other day, I believe I posted on my Instagram, I felt like customer service that day mm. because it was constant not phone calls and emails about this person said this and this person said that. I'm like, we're all adults, guys. Like, just don't say anything if it's not nice and be respectful. <laughs> so I still feel like I'm in the moment because I want to do a good job. And so I'm, I'm present and I'm, and I'm trying to make sure that I inherently understand what these concerns are and what I can do to help fix it. I'm a, I'm a fixer by nature. I think all of us are, right? We are, we are problem solvers. To me, I am a type A problem solver. And so right now I'm still very much present, but I can tell you at the, after every phone call, I, I am in my office with the door closed on and I'm like, WTF. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Why was that even an issue? Yes, definitely. That's how I decompress. You Music. feel like, do you feel like you were protected from some of that before you were in this role or was it just something that you weren't as involved in? Like, are you learning a lot more about kind of how your role is needed now that you're in it? Yes. I wouldn't say I was protected before. I would just say I wasn't in the position to be aware because before I was the nurse educator and I was the nurse educator to the ancillary staff. So why we call on TIFF to talk about this HR issue, right? That was purposely why the president wanted to put me in this position before she left to say, you now have the authority to talk and do anything with anyone. Um, and so, and I don't think people understand the significance of that because I could have very well continued diversity and inclusion as an educator, but then any rules or change policies or to be in certain rooms and at certain meetings, I would have to ask for permission. Mm. Now people are coming to me because I am that point person. And I'm talking about people are coming out the woodworks because I've been identified as the go-to person. So before I think I had an idea of what was going on, now I'm very much in it because people are telling me and I'm having behind the scene conversations with HR and legal you know, that I would have never been a part of before and having PR conversations about, we're going to post something on our Facebook page. Can we run this by you? Like what? 
I would have never been in that conversation before that PR is now running things by, by me before they put it out to the public. Like that's huge. Mm-hmm. So in this position, I have the authority to be in these rooms. I don't think I was hidden from it before. That's awesome. It must feel, it must feel really great to be able to kind of take your, your activism like a step further in your professional life. Like that must feel really impactful because you are, you're making a difference in such a different way and such on such a larger scale in this, in this yeah. role. Can I tell you, I felt some guilt about not being at a protest. Mm. Right. Um, but to me, that's not, that's not what I want to do to make a change. That's not how I agents. I feel there's so many different lanes and people have the level of comfortability. I am an educator through and through. If I wasn't a nurse educator, I would be a teacher at, at a high school, <laughs> you know, or a community educator or something. I like translating high level things and put it in layman's terms so that people get it and then they understand and then they can make better decisions from it. So to me, I think while the protesting is significant, I just personally wasn't comfortable with doing that. And I felt a little guilt, like my black card should be revoked because I'm not out there with a sign up against the police line protesting. So I think that's another reason why I go extra hard at work because I literally have the ability to change policy. I have the ability to put standards into place. I have the ability to make opportunity for people. And for me, that is more significant than being outside in a Black Lives Matter t-shirt Yeah. and posting on Instagram. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point because I think that activism can look differently. And you've given a good example of using your true talents, you know, mm-hmm. for the cause in the best way possible. And I think that, you know, we all show up in different ways. Um, so, no, but I can, I can see how that guilt, um, I can see how you would feel, you could feel that guilt. Right. I don't like crowds anyway. I've never, <laughs> not, like, and I don't have any... <laughs> I don't like crowds anyway. If anybody knows me, they know if there's a big crowd or a huge party or anything, I'm going in the opposite direction. (laughs) So no matter what the protest was, it could have been a rally. The Eagles could have won the Super Bowl and they could have been outside parading. And I still would not have gone because I don't like crowds. And so to me, it's like I'm putting myself in a situation that I know makes me uncomfortable, but I also feel like it's not enough. And so what can I do in my world that I can manage and control? So I've donated money to different organizations. I've read lots of books. I I educate. I use my social media platform to educate. Um, But then I'm also doing behind the scenes work, which to me is the lane that I choose to be in. Mm -hmm. I would love to talk a little bit about structural racism and how it exists in the healthcare system because I think that it really affects nurses um, greatly and not only affects nurses, but it affects patients. So I'd love to kind of open up that discussion. And, you know, I am reminded of, I think, a post that you made on Instagram um, a few weeks ago where you were talking about how 
um, as nurses in nursing school, there's, you know, a chapter about cultural competency, and it tells you what each different ethnic group, how they respond to pain and how they respond to bad news. And then that's pretty much the extent of what we learn about kind of inclusion and differences. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that and for us to explore structural racism a bit. Talk about an oxymoron, right? In nursing, we are told that our patients need to have plans of care, but yet in our nursing textbook, we say that all Latina people do this and all Asian people do this. And when Muslims come to the hospital for labor, they do this. And while yes, there are cultural and traditional practices that may come out of a race or a religion that you should be aware of and privy to, I think it's also important to say that people are not a monolith and that not all people do this. And to have that part in the nursing textbook literally be one chapter, in some places it's just one page or one paragraph, it's not enough. And it doesn't speak to the intricacies and nuances and the minutiae of people. People are people. And how I grew up and how you grew up, you and I may be more alike, um, even though we're black and white, than maybe some other black people that I know, just because of the different privileges that I had due to education and opportunities and um, my job and employment. So I may find more things in common with you than somebody else. And we may react the same way to certain things other than somebody who's black, right? So I just don't think it's enough. For me, I think to be, to be a thought leader, and to critically think about diversity and inclusion, it's a spectrum. And it starts with awareness at the basic level that people are different. And then it goes to sensitivity that you need to respect the difference. And then it goes to um, competence where you learn about the difference. And then it goes to humility where you try to incorporate the difference in the practice. So I think it is a spectrum I don't think nursing school does a good job with getting to the humility part. We, we stop at the sensitivity or the competence part, which is, yes, you're different and I'm aware. Done. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I'm, I'm sure you've been seeing it too, but I feel as though there have been a lot of, a lot of nurses, um, a lot of white nurses who have made these public statements on social media about why they think that you know, they're basically against the Black Lives Matter movement. They're saying all lives matter, you know, making, you know, very uncomfortable and racist statements. And it makes me wonder, like, where it's obviously ingrained, you know, the the racism has been learned over a long, long period of time. But where in the nursing education process can there be an intervention where should there be an intervention? You know, should it be some sort of competency in RN education? You know, where, how can that be fixed? Where can we like start that unlearning for this group of people, nurses who are supposed to care for everybody in their most vulnerable moments and be sensitive and kind and care for everyone? And I don't know, it just, I don't know where the solution starts and and I struggle with that. So I um, used to be an adjunct faculty at Temple University out here in Philly, and they have an amazing community, 
I forget what it's called, but it has to do with like community health program that they have for their nursing students. And Temple University is a four-year BSN program. And their freshman does this community in, um, simulation that kind of shows them in demonstration what it's like to be without and how health disparities and lack of access to healthcare can determine a lot for you. And so before the freshmen even get into a clinical site, before they even get into clinical classes, like they're still doing their prereqs, they do this simulation where they are arbitrarily put in groups or put in houses or put in families and they're given certain money and they're given a case. And so you can be someone with diabetes and have a below the knee amputation and have two kids and no car, right? And here is your $50 for the week. Make it work. Make it work. And they have this simulation in the gym. So it's huge. And it's set up like a little town where there's a bank and there's a supermarket and there's a school and there's a clinic and there's a police department. Like, it's amazing. And you have to make it work. And I think what it shows the freshman students is that by the time this person gets to be in your care, don't be so quick to judge them as to why they are a quote unquote frequent flyer, why they are quote unquote not complying with their meds, mm-hmm. why they are obese, why they're not taking care of their diabetes and taking their insulin. Like it, I think it just puts into a different, like this is what people go through in North Philadelphia. These are your patients. This is what they do before they are admitted to the hospital, which is the admitted to the hospital is such a small window in somebody's life, right? And so we send them home and we say, you need to do this, 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 this. And does your home have stairs? And do you have somebody to take care of you? And it's like, wait, what? First of all, do I have a home? Do I have electricity? Do I have running water? And the money I do have, I'm going to use that to buy food or I'm going to use that for childcare because I don't have PTO to call out of work, but I can't have my kids, right? It's, it to me, it was like, OMG, why aren't every single school doing this? And so it starts there. And no matter if you're a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, you have community health. All four years, you have a community health rotation so that you are still in the community. Either you are in a school, you are in a daycare, you are at a drug rehab, you are in an AIDS clinic, you are in the community. And that to me makes better nurses. I think having that one chapter in one book, and it may be in your nursing leadership course, or your one of the med it's not enough. You talk about it once and then it's done. I think the, the, the way that Temple University has incorporated it into all four years of their curriculum so that you can never forget. And that's significant because Temple University is in the heart of North Philadelphia. If you know anything about North Philadelphia, it's not a pleasant place to live. Mm. And so I, I think nurse students um, need to speak up and say, well, I take that back. The onus is not on nursing students because they don't know what they don't know. So I, t- I take that back. Nursing faculty needs to be aware that what if it's someone to be, to have cultural humility, it starts from the beginning. And that I don't think having a checklist is enough because that's skill. That's a hard skill. I think to be culturally competent and have humility, those are soft skills you need to be aware of. And I talk about emotional intelligence a lot. And that's what comes into play too. 
Definitely. And then I guess the next question is, do you think that the nurse faculty know enough to have this type of awareness? You know, something that I have observed that, you know, I'm sure you would likely agree is that, you know, the amount of diversity among nurses, specifically the percentage of nurses who are Black, is extraordinarily low. Mm -hmm. And take that up notch, the amount of Black nurses in leadership, the amount of Black nurses in education, in faculty with, you know, doctoral level degrees, like it just, the percentage keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, And I feel like you could take a whole step back and say part of the problem is, is the education geared towards teaching white nurses? You know, Mm -hmm. is it really, are the objectives and the goals broad enough to assume kind of a diverse nursing student population. And I don't know, I don't know the answer to that, but I wonder, you know, if that's part of this perpetuating structural issue. It is. You you hit the nail on the head. Majority of nursing faculty are white. Are they even aware of their own implicit bias and how they treat their students? Because that's another topic too, right? But then are they even aware and willing and comfortable enough to shine a light on this for their students. And, and they're not. Yeah. They're not. And so there's a lot of schools who have diversity inclusion groups, right? Affinity groups. But the affinity group doesn't do much beyond the walls of the school. What does the faculty need to do? What kind of professional development do they need to teach them to be cognizant, to incorporate this in their curriculum? So that when the students go out there, they are better students. You just gave me an idea. I feel like that should be my next venture. (laughs) That should be my next venture, Amanda. I'm going to create professional development course for faculty, not for the students. It's not the students' responsibility. It's the faculty's responsibility. So that's what I'm going to do. Yeah for my new business venture. You're welcome. Anytime. (laughs) Well, you know, the other, I was going to say, well, maybe... Maybe this is a call for, you know, if you are a Black nurse, you should be considering going into leadership and consider becoming faculty. But then on the flip side, you know, when we're having this kind of anti-racist discussion, at least from what I'm learning, is that this isn't a problem for Black people to fix. This is a problem for white people to fix. Mm -hmm. So where is the you know, where is that involvement line? You know, where can we amplify the appropriate voices and kind of remodel the education system so that it has less or no bias or is an anti-racist education program, but also not kind of tokenize Black individuals to be the solution. Do you know what I'm trying to say? I do. Yes. So I agree with you. It's not the black faculty's problems to fix. However, white faculty and, and admin need to first identify that there's a problem and then two, make it so that black voices can be incorporated into the curriculum. So if the black faculty, the white faculty is not comfortable or prepared or educated to do this work, that they're comfortable with having a content expert come in to do so, but having that collaboration. But it starts with the nursing admin, the faculty admin to say, this is what we're gonna do. So yes, professional development needs to happen with the faculty for their own knowledge and information. 
but then how do we then translate that to the students? Well, if you are not comfortable enough with doing it, then put a guest speaker on your, on your syllabus that's gonna come in over a series of time that's going to get this information to the students. Yeah. But we need the permission. So that's similar to like my president at the hospital saying, I have to put you in this position in order for you to help us make these changes. And you tell us what changes we need to make, but because of your authority, we will do it, right? Yeah. But I, 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 I can't do it all by myself. I still need my white peers and counterparts because they have the power and the leverage. So in the same thing in the nursing school, uh, there's not enough black people for, in nursing education for us to make such a cultural change, you know, a system change in nursing. We need our white counterparts to say, okay, we have the power to do so. We're gonna make change. And then you guys who want to can come in and amplify your voice. Hmm. Well, I'm going to support your faculty professional development course. <laughs> let, let me know how I can support that. Okay. Now I have one more thing to add to my plate of things to do. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, something else that I wanted to get your thoughts on, um, uh-huh. kind of along the same lines of, you know, I mentioned that we've been seeing on social media some kind of call outs for people Um, or of people who have made some statements, you know, from a professional standpoint, if you make any sort of statement in a public forum, you can, should, and will be held accountable, you know, to people, to the public, but also to your employer. And I've seen some examples of people who have made these statements, been called out on social media, and have lost their jobs um, immediately. And maybe you've been involved in that in your hospital network. Um, But what I want to kind of touch on is the fact that I think that there is a fine line between calling out racist behavior appropriately and bullying and shaming individuals. And I I feel, you know, that bullying and shaming are issues in our profession, you know, in the nursing profession. I think that it's kind of one of our deep, dark secrets that... I would like to see not happen. Um, So while I 100% support people being called out on their behaviors and, you know, there being repercussions, I can't stand behind the shaming and the bullying. Um, And that's something that that's like some cognitive dissonance for me that I've been struggling with. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that and kind of what what is not necessarily what is right or what is wrong, just, you know, your thoughts on it. I do think people need um, to be held accountable about their, what they say. You post something on the internet, which does not belong to you. Even if your page is private and you feel like it's your page, it's still on a platform and on the internet, two things that do not belong to you. And so while you feel like you may be talking amongst your group of friends privately and posting something on social media, if your group of friends decide that they want to share that via screenshot, or if they were offended and they wanted to call you out, they also have the right to do so. I don't mind people helping others own their mess, right? So if you didn't realize that you misstepped or that you were offensive, then I don't mind helping you own it and showing you and calling it out. However, what I don't have is the capacity to harass you about it. That's what I don't have because you are an adult and you are responsible for you. 
And while I may be upset um, and I may be angry and offended, I cannot let my emotions get the best of me. And so what I feel what's happening is that people are emotional, period. They're emotional about coronavirus. They're emotional about Black Lives Matter. And there is just a lot going on with that. And then people are reacting instead of responding. And so when you react, that's your innate, emotional, visceral, immediate uh, instant gratification. I'm angry and you need, you need to know why I'm angry and you need to fix it and fix it now kind of thing. Versus I'm going to tell you why I'm upset. Um, I'm going to show you why this bothered me. Here's my recommendations on what you can do better. And sometimes I don't even have to give you my recommendations. I can just tell you I'm upset and this is why, but I'm putting it out there. If I choose to do anything more than that, then, then that's that. And it should be a conversation on solutions and education and problem solving, not shaming. I don't have the time to be everybody's police. Mm-hmm. And I don't have the time to be the town watch and monitor other people's behavior. Mm -hmm. I say this at work because it has come up where things on social media has had professional repercussions. You have the right to say whatever you wanna say. (laughs) However, some of those words have repercussions. Mm -hmm. You being affiliated with an organization that has a standard of care and a code of conduct. And so while you may have said whatever on your private social media, it has now reached your employer who now has to get involved. And if they investigate it and you have violated the code of conduct, you have now lost your job. Was it worth it Hmm. to lose your pension, to, you know, be fired and have this on your record? Like, was it worth it for you to speak your mind in such a public forum that you now have no money? <laughs> You're not thinking here. No, definitely. Being very emotional. <laughs> and if you want to say what you want to say, then say it amongst people who you trust that's not going to relay that information. I don't understand where racist nurses want to be so bold to put their comments on social media and not think that nothing will happen to them. Mm-hmm. Where have you been living? This is the age of cancel culture. Yeah. So you, what, whether you got hacked, because that has come up before I got hacked, it wasn't me, or whether this is really how you feel. You really thought that you can say how you feel and still go to work every day and not have any type of discipline about the hate speech that you put on there? Because your hospital doesn't want to be a, you know, affiliated with hate speech. You are part of the hospital. So in order for them to not be affiliated with the hate speech, they have to get rid of you. Right. You're well, not smart there. Those, <laughs> those individuals have likely been in company and expressed those opinions before and have been, you know, protected by other people's silence or, you know, have surrounded themselves with people of the same opinion. Yes. I, I think that's the only that's yes. the only explanation for how someone could be so bold yes, and, and like not bold in a good way, like stupid, bold, um, like brazen, to, yes, brazen, yes, yes. <laughs> better word, yes. um, yes. to come out and say that and, and not think that they, that there would be repercussions. Like if that's I not, agree. if that's not like 
very obvious white privilege to to come out and say that and not absolutely not even cross your mind that you would get fired for that absolutely Um, i think that's exactly you hit the you said it they have said it before and nothing happened either they were cheered or they were assured mm -hmm. or confirmed and validated in their feeling that they felt like they can repeat it on a different forum in a different scale and that yes my privilege is not to my privilege is to save me right but it's not now because a lot of companies are also afraid, right? Mm-hmm. Lining themselves with what appears to be racist behavior. Yeah. And so, uh, one, you're expendable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> First and foremost, you are expendable. If you are working for somebody else, you are expendable. And if you are a liability to this other person, they are going to cut their losses and let you go because it's, it takes more for them to manage public relations, to manage social media, to manage all of that when they could just let you go and cut it and, and, that, and that be that. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. I don't, people are not thinking. <laughs> people are emotional and it's okay to be emotional, but I think when you're you should not act. You should sit down in your emotions and process them and then become logical and then make a step. People are misstepping so much. It looks like a dance. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like the, the level of emotional intelligence, because that's really what you have to have to be able to be receptive to being told you made a misstep. Like that's not a comfortable thing to hear, but if you are, if you have this emotional intelligence, you will you'll listen, you'll apologize, you'll say, you know, you'll examine what you did wrong and then you will improve yourself to do better. Um, yeah. But I feel like that's not, that's not what we're seeing with all these kind of call outs, whether it's of individuals or brands or companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's just so much defensive, defensiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like this equation of, well, I'm a good person, so I couldn't be racist. And that's not really, like, you can be a good person and also be racist, even if you're not being intentionally racist because of, you know, the whole implicit bias. That's that's the privilege right there, that you don't even realize how racism is systemic. And so while you may not um, overtly be racist, where you're saying, I hate a certain group of people, you don't realize that some of the things that you may be participating in is, is racist, just right. due to the systemic nature of it all. Yeah. Right. And all the covert things that happens underneath in the microaggressions. Right. You may not even realize is a microaggression, but for the other person it is. I would love to hear your advice for how, um, a non-black nurse right now could be a supportive colleague and coworker to mm-hmm. a black nurse. What would be your piece of advice? First, um, and I and I and and I think this is a this is really insightful. A lot of times when we have friends and we know that our friend is going through something, we tell the friend, "Come to me if you need anything," and we put the onus on that person that's going through something to reach out to you. And that's not fair because they're already going through something. So I think for non-Black nurses, regardless of your race, if you're non-Black, right now, the spotlight is on Black people. 
And so to tell them, come to me when you're ready to talk, puts the onus on that black person to reach you to talk. And I don't think that's fair. I think first and foremost, going to your black friend to say, I am here for you and I am willing and ready to listen to your black experience. I am willing and ready to listen to your stories and um, please tell me in what capacity you would like my support. It just starts with that because now you are acknowledging my pain and my hurt and what I'm going through and you're letting me know that you're open to have a dialogue. Mm -hmm. Once we can have a dialogue, regardless of how uncomfortable it is, we can put it all out there on the table and it could be a learning experience for that non-Black person. Like the microaggressions. What do I mean by microaggressions? Stuff like, um, uh, what it, uh, my hair. So as a Black person, I switch my hair up all the time. Tomorrow, I'm getting a whole new hairstyle. When you see my Instagram, I'm going to look like somebody different because I'm getting a whole new hairstyle. And so a microaggression is like touching my hair without permission or asking me how my hair grew so fast overnight or, you know, do I wash my hair every day? Little things like that, which may come off as innocent to that non-Black person, but to the Black person is a form of microaggression. Because you putting your hands in my hair without asking me for permission or asking me for consent makes me feel like you don't value my body enough to ask if you can even touch me. You're just doing it. Um, others is you sound white for a black you sound white for a black girl, or you're pretty for a dark skinned girl, or oh my gosh, you know like how many degrees do you have, or how do you, how does your daughter can how can you afford for your daughter to go to that school? Mm -hmm. Wait, my name. How do you spell your name? You spell it the other way, right? Like, nope, C-I-F-F-A-N-Y. I'm not sure what the other way is, but you're assuming because I'm Black that my name is spelled differently. You know, like, just, it, those are little moments. Or being the angry Black woman. I can be angry, but why does my race and my gender have to come up into it? Right. No one says the angry white woman, but they say the angry Black woman as a stigma. Why does my race and my gender have to be tied to my emotion and an emotion that everybody feels? Everybody gets angry. Everybody has the right to feel angry. Why is it when I do it and I express it, I am the angry black woman? Why can't I just be passionate? Right? So those are little microaggressions, I think, for non-white black nurses, for non-black nurses, putting yourself out there to want to be an active ally is a start. And then depending on how comfortable that Black person feels with you, they will let you know what support they need from you. Mm. If, if someone, if a, let's say a non-Black nurse witnesses a microaggression, maybe mm -hmm. by a colleague or someone else, what do you think is the best way to handle that in the workplace? Should it be kind of called out on the spot? Is it something that should involve the manager? Um, how would you recommend approaching that? I think it should never be called out on the spot just because you wouldn't give feedback out in the open anyway, unless it was a safety issue and you had to like scream stop <laughs> because it was a safety issue. Part of being effective Part of having effective communication is knowing how to give and receive feedback. And so calling somebody out on something that they're doing wrong in a public setting is just not effective. It shuts that other person down to receiving what the problem is, right? 
So I think it should be just in time feedback because don't tell me about something I did five days ago. Mm. I don't remember, but it should also be done away from the public. I think there's different levels of notification depending on the, the going on. So there's an awareness and a coaching like, hey, you know, you going to Tiff and telling Tiff that she's pretty for a dark skinned woman is not cool, right? Versus you tell Tiff to always have the psych patients because she's black and the patient's black, so she should be able to, to handle them. Then that should go up to like management in HR because that type of microaggression or even overt aggression is hindering my, my work. I think if small microaggressions happen over time, that also needs to be escalated because now you're creating a hostile environment for me. If it was a one-off, then it's a one-off and you go and apologize to that other person. They don't have to accept your apology, but you've made acknowledgement that you said something that was offensive and you are trying to be remorseful. Done. If it happens over time, then this is now a pattern and now this needs to be escalated. So I think it, it's not a one-size-fits-all as far as notification, but the person who did the offending should always be notified in that moment privately that they, they were offensive. I agree. I think that, I think that that's a good kind of actionable type of tip because, you know, I know that there are plenty of people who are kind of immersing themselves in this anti-racism work and may be wondering, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, reading about this, I'm learning about this, I want to be a better white person, but how can that translate into the workplace? And I think this is a good um, example of how to be more of an active ally um, at work. I think also too, as it relates to nursing specifically, um, make sure you are covering all your bases with your patients. I've gotten a lot of phone calls regarding pain management with, with black patients and the black patient feeling like they're not getting managed well, and the doctors and the nurses feeling like, uh, can you help me see if there's a blind spot, you know? And I'm still a nurse and I'm still an educator. To me, it's clinically. Does the, clinically, does a person need morphine? Does a person need IV dilaudid? Clinically, what is going on? Um, and because pain is so subjective and because pain management has such a long history of being a disparity for Black people in healthcare. It's such a touchy subject. But what I find is when I simply go to the patient to talk to the patient, I start off clinically. I don't even start off with the race. Clinically, these are our findings. These are your lab values. These are our images. These are your signs and symptoms. These Clinically, this is the plan of care. You can't go home on IV downloaded. We have to start switching you to something PO, something that you can manage at home. Like I start with the clinical. And a lot of times that's what eases the situation is the patient wasn't educated fully or had all the, the information that they needed and they don't understand our decision-making. All they know is I was on a dilaudid PCA overnight and I woke up and it's not there anymore and I want my pain meds and you're not giving it to me and I want it and I want it and I want it and it's because I'm black. But it's like, mm, every time we give you morphine, you vomit and you have diarrhea. And so we got to stop. <laughs> every time we give you, you know, oxy, you, your respirations go below 10. And, you know, like we got to stop. So it's, it's, I think a lot of, and this is for anybody who escalates in behavior. 
a lot of the times that people escalate in behaviors because they don't have all the information, right? Think about like boarding an airplane and why is the plane leave and people start getting angsty and, and have anxiety. Well, if we were told that the plane was late because it was a mechanical problem, then that makes more sense to me other than it's late. Right. Or why did we, we sat down first in a restaurant and they got their food before ours, right? And now you get upset. Well, if, if the chef came out or the waiter came out to say, we're still working on it, five more minutes or whatever, whatever information you need, you're less likely to escalate in behavior because you have some information to go off of. I think that a lot of times that happens with our patients, even in racial situations they don't understand your decision making then all they're going to do is draw conclusions on their past experience sure then it's going to be it's because i'm black what other reason can it be well let me tell you the other reason (laughs) yeah and so that's that's i think as a white nurse um that's how you can help you can make sure that your black nurses know that you are there and you're willing to be there and support and then make sure your nurses your patients know your decision-making, their plan of care, and that you're doing what's best for them in that moment. Yeah, no, that's great. I think that you bring up a good point that, you know, everybody, everybody's responses and reactions are based on their past lived experiences. And, you know, I think it's easy, you know, when you're dealing with a patient who's maybe escalating to get defensive, but if, you always take a step back and realize that there's a reason for the response and it's based on, you know, a previous experience, then figure out a way to provide more information, provide more context about, you know, Mm -hmm. just find a way to communicate about what and why you're doing. And it can, it can solve a lot of, a lot of those problems. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, Tiffany, I love talking to you. I feel like we could talk all day. <laughs> we could talk all day. Like, can we make this a standing appointment? Like I I once a week? <laughs> I literally get paid to, to talk all day. <laughs> well, I really appreciate your time. And, you know, you and I have had conversations like this before. And I really value that we are able to kind of come together and have difficult conversations as two individuals with different lived experiences, mm-hmm. um, but still kind of be able to make some sense out of everything um, yeah. after the fact. So thank you for having me. Of I course. Conversation. Uh, where can people find you, Tiffany? So I am on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook um, with the handle New Nurse Academy. You can also email me at hello at newnurse-academy.com. And my website is newnurse-academy.com. Perfect. And I will make sure that all of your social links are um, in the show notes so that everyone can pop in and find you and connect with you and support you as you support all of us. So thank you so much. Thank you, Tiffany. Well, that does it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and making it all the way to the end. If you found today's episode helpful, would you take a minute and give me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts? It will truly help other nurses find this show and know that it's worth listening to. For more information about this episode, as well as a place to submit your questions or suggestions for future episodes or guests, head to nursebecoming.com. I cannot wait to connect with you again soon. And until next time, remember, I am always rooting for you.